Well, this morning we're going to continue in our study of the book of Deuteronomy, and we are in chapter 14 this morning. So if you want to open up your Bibles there, not all of the Scripture will be on the screen this morning. It would be helpful for you to have it in front of you. And honestly, we are moving deeper and deeper into that section of the book of Deuteronomy that just seems strange to us. It's full of oddities for the modern reader to try to figure it out. Here's a couple of passages that exemplify that. A couple of verses just from our passage today. Here's the first verse. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. All right. How about this one? Drop down to verse 21, the back end of that. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I know that these are all verses that you all have been meditating in your quiet times on this week and are deeply meaningful to you. But for me, they are befuddling at points. What do I do with these? And in addition to these verses, right in between, in fact, the first 20 or so verses of our passage today are about uh, what we might call food laws, declaring what is clean and what is not clean for the Israelites to eat. Here's an example from the middle of our text. Chapter, or verse 6, every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. Now you have to admit, when you're in that through, read through the Bible in a year plan and you get to these portions of Scripture, this is where you catch up, Right? Because you can go really fast through this section of Scripture. Scripture, It seems highly skippable. This morning, I, I want to remind us, we believe that this is the Word of God for us. That when the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, he said, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. He was talking about this law. It's part of what he had in mind. So, let me invite you. Spend the next half hour with me thinking carefully about what this law means for us today. How it shows God to us. What kind of claim is God laying upon the lives of those who worship him when he scripts even their menu. Let me preview the answer to that question for you. He is claiming it all. He is claiming all of your life for His glory. Not just an hour on Sunday morning, but everything right down to your menu choices. He is claiming that you might honor Him with it. So, in light of what's before us, this would be a really good time for you to pray for your pastor, and I will pray for you. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, help us to understand what it is you are saying to us through this good and valuable section of your word to your people. But more than understanding, God, today you are going to ask some of us to an act of radical obedience to you. I don't know what that is. But I pray that you would give grace 
that we might say yes to whatever it is you're about to ask of us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, when I spoke in Deuteronomy 12, we worked through a hypothetical invitation from your neighbor, Bubba, to partake in a cookout where he was offering you blood sausage. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you can go online and get the talk. Let's, let's continue that metaphor today, only it's not Bubba. This time it's one of the engineers at work, and we'll call him Baba. And Baba has invited you to a cookout at his house. And you say, oh, Baba, what's on the menu? And he says, oh, we're having camel. Camel. Is it okay for you to go to Baba's cookout and have camel? We just read Deuteronomy 14, 7, no camel. No badger, for that matter. Um, and no rabbit, curiously enough. But no camel. I got, just to show you that this is not as hypothetical as you think it is, I got this email from one of our um, families that's living in Africa, serving Christ there. Uh, they write this. They say, um, this is uh, Jason and Jerry, those of you who know them. Uh, she says, J.D. had the opportunity this past month, along with some of our visitors, to meet with Zach, who's their translator from the people they're trying to reach with the gospel and some other leaders in his community to discuss ways that we can serve their community. A meeting like this has never taken place before, so we're all a little anxious going into it just to see what would happen. But our father is faithful, and the meeting was a great success. The father put all the pieces together. The men had a wonderful time together, eating camel meat, drinking camel milk, and discussing the community. All right, time out. The missionaries are eating camel. The Bible forbids camel. What do you do with that? How do we know how this bears on our lives? Can you go to Baba's camel cookout or not? Um, I hope that by the end of our time today, you'll have a sense about that. But you'll have a greater sense about what this scripture really is pressing on your life about. And I've already tipped my hand. Christ is claiming all of your life. You cannot say you follow him and keep these pockets where he's not allowed. And we see it here, right down to the menu item. He loves you and he wants to protect you, and he is claiming that area of your life for his glory. But before we get to the, the food, food issues, there's that odd one that I brought up initially. You are sons of the Lord your God, first verse. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Okay. As best we can tell, this appears to have to do with mourning practices, M-O-U-R, mourning practices, associated with the death of someone at a funeral of the people that surrounded them as they were entering the land. In all likelihood, this was some kind of a worship practice, and what may have been happening is that they were, the people were cutting themselves as a cry, a plea to their gods to awaken and show them mercy. That's the kind of relationship they had with their gods. Here, God is saying to his people, at death's door, hope in me alone. Don't embrace the practices of people who do not believe in me. At death's door, 
trust and hope in me alone. You know, God is claiming all of life with these laws, perhaps especially that portion of life when life ends and our faith can be seriously tested. All of life is to be devoid of the idolatrous practices of those around us because we are His sons. We are His children. He expands on that in the next verse. You are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So why are we to live so differently? Because we have been chosen by God to be His treasured possession, undeservedly chosen. And Deuteronomy is saying this over and over and over again. Chapter 7. He's actually quoting chapter 7 in our passage. It says again, chapter 7, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. They were chosen, not because they were more in number, but because God loved them. Chapter 8, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it's He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is to that day. It wasn't because of their own power or their hard work that they were so blessed by God. Chapter 9, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. It was not because of their righteousness, but simply because God loved them and had chosen them. We, like God's people long ago, have been chosen in spite of our sin, not because of our merit, not because we deserve to be chosen but simply because He loved us. And the Bible, the word the Bible uses for this is the word grace. It's, it's all of grace. Ephesians says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, at graveside, our hope is in God alone, nowhere else. As Bill Hybels put it <clears throat> one time, he said, Christianity is the greatest way to live and the only way to die. Paul would say, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We hope in God. <clears throat> and a Christian funeral is a distinctive declaration of that great hope. Okay? We hope in God surely and alone. Being chosen, being so greatly loved by God is supposed to change us so that we will be fiercely loyal and devoted to the one who has loved us alone right down to the items on the menu. And that's what follows this, 
this conversation about being God's chosen and holy people. Then he goes into all the food laws. And you can just glance down. I'm not going to put it on the screen. He starts out by saying, you shall not eat any abomination in verse 3. Then he says you can eat ox and sheep and goats and deer, things like that. But don't eat the camel. Don't eat the rabbit. Don't eat the rock badger. Um, then he goes from animals on the land to the, to the waters. And he says you can eat whatever has fins and scales. But if it doesn't have fins and scales, don't eat it. Then he goes from the land to the water to the air. You can eat clean birds, but don't eat vultures and buzzards and owls and stuff. Okay. Don't eat the stork and don't eat the bat. Sounds like really good counsel to me. Now, what do these have for us today? What's, how does this, how does this help us? Um, you know, I had a conversation recently and ran this, I explained to him that this was, um, if you came to church today, you get to figure out why we don't get to eat pork, because the pig is one of those prohibited items, and um, the answer was, isn't that Old Testament? You know, yes, it's Old Testament. We can't just throw the Old Testament away, like it's some preface to our Christian Bible. It brings God and His Word to us. It is just as valuable to us as the New Testament, even though we may not be under its laws in the same fashion. And in fact, the New Testament helps us know that we are not with respect to these food laws. Jesus would say in Mark 7, He says, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Nothing you can eat will make you unclean. Jesus says, but the things that come out of you are what defile you. Peter has this vision in Acts. He becomes hungry and he wants something to eat. And while they're preparing it, he fell into a trance and he sees the heavens open, something like a great sheet descending, let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And a voice comes to him and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Happened three times, so Peter would make sure he got it. Everything's clean. Paul says it explicitly um, in Romans 14, verse 20. For, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. So all foods are declared clean for us. You can go to Baba's cookout and eat the camel with a clear conscience. Okay. I've actually had camel on one of our mission trips to the Middle East. It's not bad. I, I can't say much about badger or owl or buzzard, but the camel is not bad. Um, what do we do with this? What's our takeaway from these food laws? Are we just supposed to eat weird Christian foods like the Bible bar? When we're done for, I'm not kidding you. Are we, when we're done with our workout, do we replenish with the Bible bar that has the seven foods mentioned in Deuteronomy 8, 8 in it? Or if you don't like that, how about some of Noah's nuggets? 100% organic, no doubt what he was munching down on while he was on the ark. Or how about seeds of Samson? I'm not making these up. Okay. 
These are real products. John Ortberg tells a great story uh, about somebody who visited his church, and, and they wondered if his church might be worldly. And he says, well, what do you mean by worldly? guy says, well, you use drama, people are used to that in the world, and you play contemporary music just like they're used to hearing in the world, so how will they know you're any different? Everybody knows that as Christians, we're supposed to be different from people in the world by being more loving and more gentle, and everybody knows that we're not, so don't we have to do something to show we're different? And Ortberg says, in other words, if we can't be holy, shouldn't we at least be weird? Okay. Eat weird food, dress weird, drive weird. I don't know what that would be like. Um, Our calling is not to be weird. It is to be His. Holy, fully His in every area of our lives. And yes, that shapes what we eat. Not according to the the Deuteronomic code, right? Jesus and Paul and Peter all said, no, we don't have to abide by that anymore. That's been changed. But there are food regulations in the New Testament for us. Romans 14. Oh, here's another one. The God coffee. That would be another peculiar drink. Some of you already drink the God coffee. You might need to repent of that a little bit. It might be kind of an idolatrous thing for you. One person believes, Paul says, he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. He's talking about meat sacrificed to idols. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. A little farther down, he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord the Lord Jesus, that nothing, here it is again, nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. See, the mark of a believer today is love. Love that even constrains what we will eat and will not eat and what we'll drink and will not drink. We will defer to one another in love. That's the mark of a Christian. Francis Schaeffer, in his excellent short article, on the, it's available on the internet, The Mark of a Christian, says, um, says this. He says, um, love and the unity it attests to is the mark Christ gave Christians to wear before the world. Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. Love constrains us even to what we will and won't eat. Now, in order to do that, we must not be idolatrously ensnared by our food. And believe it or not, That can happen in a word that has fallen out of favor in our culture, in our day, such that many of our children won't even know what it means. The Bible warns us about a sin called gluttony. Um, Philippians 3 talks about it. It says, many of you 
or excuse me, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What are those enemies like? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? That where they look for joy and comfort and satisfaction is to the pleasures of their belly. That's what they hope in. Um, this, is, this is a needed word for us in our day. There was a 2011 study of the top temptations Americans face. Tied for number one were anxiety and procrastinating. The number two temptation in the number two slot was eating too much. Huh. Eating too much. There's a counselor uh, online, his name is Rob Green, and he put some important thoughts together about this, about thinking about gluttony. He says, questions like this seem to be important. When life is hard, where do you find your joy and satisfaction? When you are hurting, where do you seek comfort? When you think of a relaxing moment, what elements are included? Do you take a good thing like food and make it a bad thing by overindulging? For the glutton, the answers to those first three questions eventually find their way back to food. Food becomes the place where the glutton receives joy, where the glutton receives satisfaction, where the glutton receives strength for his day. The glutton indulges in his or her food rather than eat a reasonable portion. He says it's important to realize, though, a skinny person could actually be a glutton because that is where he finds comfort, joy, and satisfaction, even if his body is able to metabolize his intake efficiently. An overweight person might not be a glutton because that person is more inclined to gain weight, even when eating reasonable portions. He says the scale, while being a possible indicator, does not tell the whole story because the scale cannot look at the heart. Gluttony is a matter of the heart, that it's possible for idolatry to sneak into our lives even through our dinner table. It's so important for us not to give the devil a foothold of any sort, even in the matter of what we eat. What kind of claim is God making on our lives in Deuteronomy 14? He is claiming all of it, right down to the menu items, if need be. And in this, He is protecting us even at the level of menu from falling into idolatrous practices. You see, these food laws, you read them and you're like, well, it's just random. Why one and why not the other? And some people have said it's, a, it's about health, and sure, there's some health practices in it. For instance, we'll find out that eating roadkill is a bad thing, and I, I would have to agree with that. But even that is not wholly about health, because that's allowed to be given and offered as a gift to the alien and the sojourner in your land. So it's not all about health, though definitely there are health benefits. Some have said that it's a bit arbitrary, something like God's version of because I told you so. Okay. It's just to inspire obedience in God's people as He has commanded. And um, along those lines, Christopher Wright wisely points out that at every meal, as Israel chooses, chooses to eat that which God has chosen for them, they are reminded of His choosing of them. He says, a God who governs the kitchen should not be easily forgotten in the rest of life. And it is just establishing the full lordship of, of God in every area of our life. 
But in our passage, the main emphasis here is on their wholehearted devotion to God alone, no idols, no idolatrous practices, not even in what they put on the menu. And you pick up on that in that very first verse as he talks about the food laws, you shall not eat any abomination. That word abomination in Deuteronomy is associated with the idolatrous practices of the Canaanites that lived in the land where they were about to go. So clearly his primary concern here is that they wouldn't fall into the idolatrous practices of the day by means of what they eat. It is a protection of their hearts. They are a demonstration of the jealous love of God for his people. Remember that commandment? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, even thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God's jealous love both protects his glory and protects his people, protects us from falling into idolatry even in the slightest. And that's what all of these odd-shaped food laws are intended to do, primarily, I think, as protection from idolatry for the people of God. Now, at the end of that section, in verse 21, I alluded to roadkill. Here's the roadkill verse. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Probably that has to do with the fact, as we saw in 12, that the blood had not been drained from the animal appropriately when it was killed, according to the directions that were given a couple chapters ago. So then he drops this odd little phrase, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Again, there's some evidence that there were some similar idolatrous practices done by the pagan religions around Israel. So this, too, is a protection against their engaging in idolatry. But there's also an idea throughout all these passages, and, or all this passage and here, of not getting things confused, getting things twisted around in a way that they ought not be. Um, in this case, that which is intended to give life ought not ought to be used to bring death. The milk of the mother intended mother goat to sustain this little one ought not ought to be used to take life from this little one. And um, some, some thinkers on these passages are thinking about this and reflecting on how this might apply, in fact, to abortion practices in our day. It's worth thinking about. Well, the back of our chapter then shifts away from the food laws to the way that the people brought their tithes in worship. He says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. So every year they're bringing a tithe. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose, we've seen that the choosing of that place, again, is a safeguard for them from idolatry. He chooses to make his name dwell there. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. 
And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you. So God's going to bless them so much they can't carry it. And now he makes a provision for them. He says, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. So if they couldn't bring their own offering, they could sell it, travel to the place of worship, and buy a new offering. Look what they're supposed to do. Now, this is really interesting. Spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. So this is an interesting aside. Okay, they can't eat pork, but they can have strong drink. Just think about our culture with respect to that. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so you, were, you shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household, and you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns. So the picture is, it's a party. Okay? Go buy good food, strong drink, and have a celebration in an act of worship to your God. Okay. This, is, this is the kind of worship God desires from His people. A grand celebration of His blessing on their life. Says, Consume it with joy, He says, to my glory. Now, while it's difficult to establish from these kinds of passages that the tithe is a law that we're supposed to follow today. In other words, if you give 9% of your money, a tithe is 10%. If you give 9%, you're in sin. Um, that's difficult to establish as a law because it's obviously a civil law and it's not broadly repeated in the New Testament. But it is not hard at all to glean the principle of Glad's systematic generosity from this passage. And it's not hard at all to see especially from my perspective, how valuable giving 10% of your income can really be to your spiritual health. I cannot commend to you that practice more gladly. Um, I don't think it's a law. I don't think you're in sin if you end up at 8.5 or 9.7. But I think it's a good God-given marker for us to start. Um, I know that for Steph and me, when we first got married... Uh, we went from being poor college students to dinks. We were double income, no kids. We had more money than we have ever had to this day. Okay. Now we have five kids, and we're not anywhere close to as uh, the, the financial place we were when we first got married. Um, but it was so helpful for us. You know, we're trying to decide, so how much should we give? The, the tithe was a good guide for us. Um, Randy Alcorn says, it's like training wheels. It's a good place to start. And I commend it to you happily. Randy Alcorn also says, the, another good thing about tithing, he says, it involves calculation. Adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing. In the process of specifically dealing with the amounts God has provided, we assess God's benefits to us, which can be, he says, healthy. It helps us count the blessing of God in our life. But again, the main idea here is not that it's a tithe, but it's the way that it's brought. It is a riotous, joyful party. Okay? Spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink. 
whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. So the family gathers and celebrates around this amazing meal, this feast, the goodness of God. And Moses says that this will produce the fear of God in our lives, that the fear of God doesn't just come from hardship, but it comes from plenty as well as we see how good God has been to us and how we need that goodness on a daily basis. The New Testament echoes these same themes in the book of 2 Corinthians. We're to give consistently and proportionally and joyously. Remember, God loves a cheerful giver. It's the same idea. This glad, disciplined generosity is to mark the people of God as part of their worship. Um, and it is. It, it is marking us. Um, they've done some surveys on the difference between regular, the giving patterns of regular church attendees and those who do not attend church. 91% of regular church attendees give to charity each year, compared with 66% of those who said they do not have a religion. It says the, the gap adds up. The faithful give four times more money per year than their secular counterparts. Four times more. While most of the money is given to churches, religious people also give more to secular charities, such as the Red Cross or their alma mater. Turns out we donate twice as much blood as well. Um, but we can and must do better in this area of disciplined, glad generosity. About 10 years ago, they were surveying trends of giving in the church, and they were alarmed at what happened one year to the percentage of Christians, um, born-again adults, who they were calling them, who tithed to their church, gave 10% to their church. In the year 2000, there were 12%. In the year 2001, there were 14% who tithed to their church, and the alarm was that in 2002, it dropped to 6%. I was alarmed in 2001 when it was at 14%. Okay? So essentially, only a tithe of the church is tithing to the church. Um, I don't think it's supposed to work that way. There was a, there's a husband and wife team of researchers um, from the Midwest in Champaign, Illinois, and they've been doing research on what the global poverty uh, need is. And they added up all the basic essential human needs around the world, things like clean water and sanitation, premarital infant maternal care, basic education, immunization, all that kind of stuff. They added it up and tried to estimate what would it take to meet the baseline needs of the poor around the world. And they came up with a staggering figure, 70 to $80 billion a year to meet that need, to essentially meet the needs of the poor around the world, the baseline needs. And it sounds like a lot, but they found out that if church members in the United States would increase their giving to 10% of their income, there would be an additional $86 billion available for overseas missions. We can and must be more gladly and disciplined, disciplinedly, I don't know if that's a word, generous, regularly, consistently generous. We can, we must. Are your family meals 
marked by joyful acknowledgement of the good provision of God. Do you have family meals? You should. You should have a meal together. When you do, do you thank God and pray? You must. You must give thanks to God. It brings Him honor that you rejoice over His bountiful provision for your family. Are you gladly generous to God's work in your local church and other ministries? If you cannot gladly tithe regularly, then your finances are likely disordered and so likely is your heart. If you cannot tithe, but you still have cable, you should get rid of cable. If you cannot tithe and you live in a big house, you should get a smaller house. If you cannot tithe and you drive a new car, then you should get an older car. If you cannot tithe and you eat lunch out every day, then you should pack your lunch. Because one estimate says you can save just shy of $1,000 a year by packing your own lunch. Here's my point. If the joyful, disciplined practice of generosity pleases our God, then you should order your life so you can do that. And even, even the poorest among us can do that. Um, in his book, God so loved that he gave. Justin Borger tells a story about a homeless woman who lived under a bridge in downtown Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, her name was Tammy. And after providing her with some basic hygiene supplies, he didn't hear from her for a few weeks until she called and said that she had been raped. And after Borger brought her to the hospital, Tammy started attending Borger's church, and the church started providing vouchers so she could buy food and other items. He said that created a problem, though. Tammy kept giving the vouchers to other people. So the homeless lady is getting money from the church, and she's turning around and giving it to other homeless people. Borger told her, Tammy, you need to keep this for yourself, otherwise you'll run out of food. But living under the bridge meant living with other needy people, and it was unthinkable for her to receive a gift and then not share it with others. So with an incredulous stare, she asked Borger, why can't I give some too? See, no matter how little you may have, it thrills your God that you would trust Him and worship Him and be generous even at that time, even at that time, even in that place. And that's really where this closing two verses go. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your town. So this is a different tithe, a three-year tithe. In fact, if you add up all the tithes in the Old Testament, some experts tell us they add up to about 23%. That was the Old Testament tithe when you added them all together. This one happens every third year. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. This, this tithe, every third year, 
is God's way of caring for the poor amongst his people. Every third year, they took another tithe, and they, they gave it to the poor, to those who were in need. And God blessed them for it. If you want to live where God loves to bless, then be generous to those who are in need. Listen to Proverbs 19. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Be generous to the poor, and God will bless you in all the work of your hands, it says here. You know, tonight, there is a... uh, meeting of the Sojourners Ministry that's just starting here at North Wake. It's a way to care for uh, an influx of refugees in North Raleigh. And um, it's a brand new ministry. It is an unbudgeted ministry. And I bet if you show up tonight and offer them a check, they'll take it. Okay. It's just one small way um, that you can live in the blessing of God and worship Him with your resources in the way He longs for you to by caring for those less fortunate than you. Um, and I can't think of anyone better than those sojourners, those refugees to our country. Um, our feed ministry every morning serves people who are struggling to make ends meet such that they don't have enough to buy groceries. And so they come here and they meet with some of our volunteers and give away food. They always need donations. That would be a place where you could help. 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 31 tells us that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Because, you see, we are chosen to be holy and His in all of our lives, right down to the menu choices. Are even the mundane things of life, what you eat, What you watch, how you talk, what you wear, what you buy, are these things set apart for you and offered to God in joyful worship? Are the everyday things of your life offered to God in joyful worship? Do you give thanks for these things? Do you honor Him with these things? What is God claiming of your life from Deuteronomy chapter 14? He is claiming it all. Right down to the menu choices. Let's pray. Lord, these passages are puzzles to us in many levels. But yet there you are the great, loving protector of your people, the only one worthy of a whole life dedicated to worship, our work, our leisure, our money, our meals, to be offered in ways that please and honor you. And Lord, my my guess is that for many of us, we are reminded that there is disorder in our house, that there are things that we offer to other gods, probably mostly ourself and our pleasures, and not to you. So Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters that we would give you gladly what you ask. That's all of us. We would give you gladly worship that you love, and that is the joyful giving of our lives to you.
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now this morning.